Some of you have heard the story before of Louis Zamperini, as told by Laura Hillenbrand in her book, Unbroken, and rehearsed this week by Peggy Noonan. Louis was born to Italian immigrants living in California in a hard scrabble world in the first part of the 20th century. He ran for our U.S. Olympic team in 1936 and joined the Army Air Corps in 1941 after Pearl Harbor. He crashed into the Pacific Ocean, spent 47 days on a raft, his life threatened by storms and Japanese snipers and sharks that circled his raft. After 47 days, he was taken by enemy troops and spent two years in a prison camp. He survived that camp and came back a war hero. But a man whose life was in a terrible slide that he seemed not able to stop. And Louis unraveled before the eyes of his family and friends in depression, despair, alcoholism, and rage. He could not keep a job, and finally Cynthia said she was going to leave him. A neighbor, though, told Cynthia about something that was happening in Los Angeles, a tent revival and a young preacher named Billy Graham. Louis didn't want to go. Took her several days to convince him, but finally he relented and went. And he recounts the event. Sitting in that tent, listening to this man preach the gospel. And how, again, he heard the fins of the sharks underneath his raft and knew the drowning man that Billy Graham spoke of was him. And God sent his grace and rescued this man and he left that meeting with a new life, a new direction, and a new hope like Taylor talked about in Christ alone. I wonder if there's somebody here whose salvation experience was influenced by the ministry of Billy Graham. Anybody? Would you stand up? Would you stand up if your salvation experience was influenced by this man? Thank you for being testaments of the good news of the gospel. I tell you, it was all about grace for Billy. He focused on the gospel despite the enormous pressures from political leaders and world leaders that he must have felt to give his extensive influence to their cause. And yet I grew up respecting a man who stayed focused on the good news of Jesus Christ not perfectly, but amazingly, 
for a man of his influence. You know, at 31, they offered him a job in the movies of Hollywood. And he said, I wouldn't take it if you paid me a million dollars a week. Already at 31, he had traveled the world preaching the gospel. We come to John chapter 2. And you wonder, what's this parable or what's this story about? And the answer is, it's about the grace of God made manifest in Jesus Christ. So turn with me as we continue, awkward family photos. This is our second one. The first one was Andrew and the other disciple tagging behind Jesus. Jesus turning around saying, what do you want? And they say, well, can we come stay with you? Now we come to another awkward moment in the life of Jesus. And we are in John 2, verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine, after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best for now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So we are told at the end of this event why it happened, why Jesus performed his miracle. It was so they would see his glory. They would see his glory. John says in the first chapter, we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full full of grace and truth. This happened so that they would see his glory and believe in him. It's an awkward development. They have no wine. Now, most of you know 
I'm a teetotaler. So if you run out of beer at the party, you don't come to me and say, hey, we need a couple six-packs. Would you mind going? I mean, that isn't going to happen. I'm just not going to do it. I don't buy it. I don't drink it. We don't have any in our house. That's just who I am, okay? So it's a little awkward for me, all right, to read this story and see the concern about no more wine. I mean, it sounds like a good development to me. But for that culture and at that time, it's just not a good thing. And it's an awkward moment for Mary, who inserts herself into this situation. She realizes the host is about to be embarrassed. We think maybe she is actually related to this family. We know it is Cana where the wedding is taking place, that's not very far from Nazareth, so it's in their Nazareth life that they made this connection that must have been very close for not only Mary, but Jesus and his friends just come on to the wedding. And Mary is surely embarrassed a little herself, and feeling for the host. And so she comes to Jesus. And she says to Jesus, they have no more wine. Well, we might think this is just an observation, you know. Like you'd make if you were at a wedding party and you were going through the lines and all of a sudden they ran out of roast beef. You might say to somebody, you know what, they've, they've run out of meat here. I guess more people came than they thought. No. So it could be just information. They have no more wine. But Jesus is caught in an awkward moment himself because he realizes his mama wants him to fix it. Okay? Look. I raised you, I changed your diapers, I took care of you all this time, now they got no more wine here, and he knows the implication is, I want you to do something about this. Well, he's got a bunch of friends, they could all visit all of the 7-Elevens in the area, and come back with something, you know. Maybe that would have been the solution that was in Mary's mind. We don't know what's in Mary's mind that Jesus ought to do. There are lots of things we don't know, all right? But we know this is an awkward moment for Mary and for Jesus. And Jesus says to her, woman, and that is a title of respect, okay? Some would call it an honorific. How many of you ever heard the word pronounced before? Honorific. All right. I heard it for the first time at an airport just about two weeks ago. I'd never heard honorific spoken out loud that I can remember. I'd read it, but I'd never heard it spoken out loud. And an Orthodox priest whom I cornered at the airport along with a Catholic priest and asked them to explain why Jesus called his mother woman. And the Orthodox priest said, it's an honorific. I said, it's what? 
He said it's an honorific, a title of honor. So I said, okay, I get that. Jesus, by the way, also gave this title to the woman at the well, whom he called woman, and who John calls 14 times the woman and never gives us her first name. Yeah, Jesus calls her woman. The woman caught in adultery. We call them the woman at the well and the woman called, caught in adultery because we don't have their first names. John calls her just the woman. And Jesus says to her, woman, where are your accusers? Where are your accusers? They're gone. And on the cross, Jesus calls his mother woman. And I believe that in this title, he is honoring his mother and he is speaking with respect to the woman at the well who's been married five times and is now living with somebody who's not her husband and to the woman who was caught in adultery. Communicating with this honorific dignity and worth and value even though he knows their moral failings. Isn't Jesus wonderful? Let's just love him. The more you read, the more you see, the, the more you want to say, there's nobody like Jesus. He inspires, he lifts me, he challenges me. Every time I read the text, I am drawn again and again to the God who loves me through Jesus, our wonderful Lord. Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. This is the hour of his suffering, the hour of his passion. Somebody asked this morning, why did Jesus tell these folks who were healed not to tell anybody? Sometimes they call it the messianic secret in the gospel of Mark, but it was so that things would unfold like they were supposed to. It is the plan of God's salvation, all right? The, the divine timetable that Jesus is seeking to conform to as he says, my hour has not yet come. It sounds like a very important thing for his mother to hear. Let's not get ahead of ourselves here, Mom. My hour's not yet come. You'd think she would acquiesce, right? Instead, she sa he says that to her. Mary turns to the servants and says, whatever he tells you, do it. Mom! Don't you want to do that kind of... Like, hey, Mom, didn't you hear me? <laughs> so I guess my hour has come. All right. Now, this is not the only time that Jesus would respond to another petition by somebody who wanted his help. In fact, Jesus taught us, you are to pray like the importunate, the importunate, that insistent widow. And when the Gentile lady says, yes, but even the Gentiles eat the crumbs, he says, wow, that's amazing faith. And he does what she wants. And he does what they want when they give him the request. And so Mary makes the petition a second time. And Jesus 
does what she wants. He takes care of the situation. Why is this miracle in John's gospel? He's only going to record seven mighty signs in the book of signs. Why is it there? Is it only as John says that this is the first sign that Jesus did to reveal his glory? Is it because it is first? Only John records this miracle. The other three do not. Mark has in chapter 2 this saying of Jesus. You don't put new wine in old wineskins. Lest the old wineskins break and everything be lost. You put new wine in new wineskins. And he ties that to a saying of the bridegroom. As long as the bridegroom is here, we're not going to fast. When the bridegroom leaves, that's when we'll fast. He ties it to a kind of a wedding situation. He says you don't put new wine into old wineskins. And everybody understands that to be... There's something new that Jesus is doing that won't fit in the old structures that are there. And so there's got to be something new done to accommodate this new thing that Jesus is doing. But John alone records the miracle of changing water to wine. Maybe it's because... This is where John believed. I wonder if this is the moment. John watching this unfold. This miracle of 120 gallons of the best wine ever made suddenly appearing when it's all gone. John knowing it's made out of that water from the well... Maybe it's for him, like it was for John Newton. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did the grace appear, the hour I first believed. I know this, in this moment, John records, we, and that includes him, I saw his glory. Maybe it's the first time he really saw the glory of Jesus. And believed that he's the one. Maybe this is recorded. Because there's something more than wine here. When John records the healing of the blind man, Jesus teaches, I am the light of the world. When John records the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus teaches, I am the bread of life. When John records the resurrection of Lazarus, Jesus teaches, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you get it? Do you get it? Every one of the mighty signs 
has embedded in it Jesus and his glory. And the whole point of the sign is not simply to amaze or stun people, not simply to get them talking, but to help them understand who Jesus is. It is a revelation of his nature and his character and who he really is. Every one of the signs is this. Maybe the water to wine is because, once again, Israel, as the people of God, have run out of the Spirit of God. They're bereft of the grace and joy and presence of God that makes a difference in our lives. Maybe he records this because when they say there's no more wine, they're talking about that moment. And this is recorded so we will know that Jesus is the true vine. That his blood saves us all. This is the cup. That it is his body, which is the flesh, that we need. And he alone brings life. There's something more, you see, to this miracle than simply the chemistry of changing water to wine. And you got to see it. You got to see it. Because there's no more wine in the religious structures. It's like we suppose that religion is generally, generically good for everybody, and so everybody ought to have a religion. But in Israel, in this day, there was no power to transform a life, no sense of the presence of God, no recognition of what God was doing in the world among the religious leaders. And you see, religion can be as dead as anything else, and it cannot in itself save or rescue a soul. And we live in a very religious city. But I wonder how much of our religion is just plain dead. It doesn't have the power not only to change our neighbor, it doesn't have the power to change us. There's no wine left in it. I tell you, you can get to that place where you're just going through the motions. That's it. You're just going through the motions. You're practicing the rituals. You're keeping the holy days. And there's nothing going on in your heart. And nobody looks at you and sees Jesus. I think about religion in America. And the fierce effort of Billy Graham to stay out of politics and how the politicians want the preachers 
They want the imams in Afghanistan and in Iraq, and they want the Christian preachers in America to be on their side. And even as the pastor here, I have felt the pressure from senators and governors to give my influence to their agenda, and oh, won't you please get on board? And any time the church of Jesus Christ begins to be wooed by the power of politics, I tell you what's happening. The first thing that's happening is you're giving up on the gospel because now you think you're going to save the nation if you can just have a majority of senators who will give godliness back to the nation. And it's, it's a false hope. It's not going to happen. Government can't be this new wine. It can't bring in the new day. There is no transforming power here. Can you hear me? Yes. See, Jesus alone saves. And and religious people have been fooled and wooed by the power of government for all these years. To think that if they could just harness the government, then everybody would know how to pray. And everybody would hear the good news. And the, the problem with that is you can't coerce this. Government is about making people do stuff. You can't make somebody be a Christian. You can't change their heart by changing the laws. You can't do it. There's no wine in it. And so, this text draws us back to the Savior who alone can change the heart. The hope of the world is not in politics, it's in Jesus. Have you ever read how apolitical Jesus was? The Sadducees would have liked to have him on their side. The Pharisees, the Herodians, and the Zealots. They all wanted him to join their party. He was a powerful preacher. And he joined none of them. I'm not saying don't be involved as a citizen. I'm saying don't put your hope in the next guy you see stumping for election. Your eternal hope alone is in Christ Jesus. Look, if this falls on your ears and upsets you, I challenge you, you come right back here. You come right back here, okay? What Mary said was, whatever he says to you, do it. You want new wine in your life? Whatever he says to you. Not the motivational speaker. Not the politician who wants your ear. Whatever he says to you, do it. Why is that important? Because he is the way, the truth, and the life, and he alone will bring the new wine. There is no other way. This is it. Okay? Whatever he says to you, put on Facebook. Okay? Whatever he says to you, you get in that social media. Whatever he says to you, you lay down your life for it in this culture. You put your reputation on the line. Whatever he says to you, but if he doesn't say it to you, then you'll be judged wise if you keep your mouth shut. All right? Now, look, what he says to us 
is not easy. It's not easy. He says, you want to follow me? You want to follow me? Whatever he says to you, do it. You want to follow me? Deny yourself. Three things. Take up your cross. Follow me. Whatever he says to you, do it. Does life run dry for you? You feel like you yourself are drowning? You need a breath of fresh air in your spiritual walk? Is something wrong with your walk with God? Whatever he says to you, do it. And the water will turn into wine. And there'll be new sight for the blind. And the paralyzed man will walk. And the water will be your floor. And Lazarus will come forth out of that tomb if whatever he says to you, you do. Say, I just don't know that I can be that exclusive with Jesus. Well, you get the point of the miracle, right? You get the point. They saw his glory and believed in him. That was their life. You get the point of the miracle. So if you just if you're saying I just can't do that, okay. At least you understand the call. At least you got the message. At least you see what happens here. Over and over again, the people of God would turn away from him. They get involved in other things. The deceitfulness of riches would get into their heart and they'd think, oh, if I just had more stuff, I'd be happier. I'd feel secure if I had more barns, bigger barns. I, you know, and so they'd wander away from the God who gave them everything. And God would send his prophets and they would suffer his judgment and they'd come back repenting unto him. And this cycle is seen in the Bible over and over again as the prophets called him back. Come on back. You've wandered away. Come on back. And now Jesus appears on the scene. And there's been this long silence. Hundreds of years. And Jesus appears among a people who have lost the sense of God's presence. They can't identify the work of God even though it's right there in front of them. They can't see it. They're as blind as they can be. And God moves in history in this moment to once again renew his covenant with his own. And he does so through Jesus. He saves the best for now. This is the best. This is the best that's ever been. This is the best I've ever tasted. You have saved the best for now, the master of the banquet says. And that's what God did 
with his son. He saved the best for this moment in history. And you say, oh, I wish I'd have been there. That's okay. You don't have to be. You know those six stone jars full of that best wine that's ever been? It's an oversupply. It's 500 bottles of wine. It's way too much for the banquet members. It's an incredible amount of wine. And it's just in the New Testament turned over so that all the new wine will just run through the corridors of history and right down to the present era. So in this very moment, you can have the new wine that Jesus alone can bring. It is an abundance It is full of grace and truth. It is overflowing. My cup runs over. There's plenty for all. Whoever comes, there's enough for you. It's a glorious, it's a wonderful truth. You save the best for now. And there's more than we could ever use. When Billy Graham preached here at the Smoothie King Center, we call it now, the Franklin Graham music team was doing the music. We didn't know if Billy could preach or not. He was so feeble when he was here. And so he got up to speak, presented the gospel, and as I understand it, He presented the invitation for the last time. He spoke again, but this was his last invitation, I was told, this week. And as he presented, seeking to touch the heart of every individual and say, you need Christ. Your life is broken because you're without him. He alone can heal your heart, and he will come into your life if you will open the door. He turned around and he said, now we're going to sing our response hymn. Just as I am. And everybody on the platform looked at one another and said, what? We're singing just as I am? How many of you remember that? Those of you in the choir remember that? <laughs> okay. And so what did we do? We sang just as I am. Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, O Lamb of God, I come. Stand with me, please. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for Jesus, for the overabundance of grace that he pours out. We thank you, God, that your grace is greater than all our sin. It's deeper than the darkest hole in our life, that your grace is able to reach to the lowest, the most broken. Thank you, God. I pray for men and women, boys and girls in this room, 
who needs you desperately now. Lord, that you by your Holy Spirit would touch their heart and draw them to yourself in this hour of decision. In Jesus' name we pray.